Now we have the privilege of turning our attention once again this morning to the book of Jonah. So as you turn with me to the book of Jonah, I will prepare to read for you Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Listen as I read God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Lord God, as we give now this part of our time gathered together this morning to hear and consider your word. Again, we, we approach it with the recognition, God, that this is your word and that it is profitable and that you have in it things that we are to understand about men, about the nature of man, about sin, about God and his glory and his power, his authority, his anger. Lord, as well as your mercy and kindness, we just ask that uh, you would be pleased once again to enable me to speak your word clearly and faithfully. Grant also, God, those that you have brought here this morning, ears to hear, and may we be moved in worship as we consider what you have given us in this section of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, once again this morning, you'll see on the back of your worship sheet that there is a, an outline on the back that you can use to, uh, to follow along. Now, the first sermon that we considered a couple weeks ago on Jonah really was with what, how Jonah began. It said, now the word of the Lord came. And so that was the title of that sermon, the word of the Lord came. Chapter 3 begins in this way, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So really the title today is, The Word of the Lord Came Again. Now as we've, we considered then and even looked at briefly this morning, we remember when God first gave his word, his instruction to Jonah, Jonah was more than merely reluctant, right? He was outright rebellious and refusing, and he thought that he could escape, he thought that he could go another way. What I wanted, the first thing I want us to see in this is what I, what I noted here in your notes, God's pardon and patience, the restoration and rescinding of Jonah, because this is a remarkable thing, because we, when we consider it, Jonah would have rightly for his disobedience deserved punishment, indeed deserved death. He directly defied God, went against him, thought that he could act as if he was in charge of his own life, 
do what he wanted, when he wanted, when God's word was very clear to him. This is what I want you to do, Jonah. Now, I want to say this to you and I, brothers and sisters. We don't have a specific go to Nineveh, go to Nicaragua, go to India, or wherever in terms of a location as to physically where God would have us go. But we nonetheless have clearly the word of God that has come to us. This is how I would have you live. These are the things that are pleasing in his sight. These are the things that you are to put off and put aside. And a lot of us, we look at Jonah and think, how foolish is Jonah for thinking that he could outrun God when God clearly told him what to do, that he would rebel, disregard the word of God and do whatever he wanted? What is wrong with that man? Says the person who potentially knows exactly the things in their life and the decisions that they are making and the patterns that they are developing that are exactly against the Word of God, the things that he's told us not to do. And we can see that mistake in Jonah's life. We can see that error. But somehow in ourselves we think, well, that's no big deal. God is merciful, God is gracious, God is patient, and He is. But do we presume upon the patience of God? Do we take advantage of the grace of God? Or maybe we should heed what we hear here and, and say, wait, when I know what God wants of me, here's a good plan. Do it. And do it immediately. Do it all and do it exactly. Why not? I mean, generally speaking, when we look at Jonah, we think, why would he do any other than God instructed? Any other than God wanted? And yet, the tendency uh, is ourselves is to, to not have that same sense. But in the same way, what I love to see in this is God's pardon. Because I think all of us, even after we have been touched by the grace of God, and we know him, and we love him. There have been a time, an occasion, a season, where we've stumbled, where we've started to put kind of our wants and our desires ahead of God's wants and God's desired. We've, we've made a practice of doing things that we wanted without due consideration that this is not pleasing to God. We've done that. And yet, listen, has God cast us aside entirely? I mean, would he have every right to cast us aside entirely? He would. And certainly we should never consider God's mercy and God's patience as a, I think I can carry on in this sin a little longer without getting crushed. That's the wrong idea. But it is also valuable for us to know this. God is patient and God is merciful. Though I might look at Jonah here and say to a certain extent, Jonah maybe deserves to be disqualified. Even in my human logic, I'm going to look at this and say, I think God could have chosen a better man. <laughs> God could have, could have chosen someone who, who was more committed, who was more genuine, more obedient, and more sincere. But here's the glory of even what we all know in terms of God choosing us unto salvation. He didn't choose someone who was deserving. He didn't choose somebody who was fit. He didn't choose someone who was obedient. While we were dead in our trespasses and sin, while we were at enmity with God, He made us alive in Christ Jesus. He reconciled us unto Himself. So when we see the mercies of God here, we need to rejoice in the same kinds of things. And it's not only uncommon. We see here, He starts off with the repetition of this message the second time. Again, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. Those are the exact words that are used in chapter 1. And again, in like manner, I just want us to understand this. There's no question, 
And Peter asserts this to be true regarding some of the writings of Paul. There are some things that he writes that are difficult to understand. That the untrained and the unstable twist to their own destruction. There are some challenging doctrines that defy the natural expectation of mankind. As they reveal to us the eternal purposes of God. There are some of them. But remember, he didn't say everything that Paul writes is hard to understand. He didn't say the things written by Luke are hard to understand. He didn't say the things that I write are hard to understand. Much of a multitude of scripture is not hard to understand. Arise and go to Nineveh. Put away youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness and holiness without which no one will see God. I mean, very wonderfully clear, isn't it? And I'm so thankful for that. Yes, there are complexities that need, need deep study and careful evaluation. But there, for those who think, oh, the Bible can only be attained to by the deepest scholar, well-trained in, in the culture and in the language of those days, that's not fully true. The basic will of God for the ordinary lives of every single child of God is clear enough that the youngest child of God can understand it. It's not intended to be secret. As much as people might want to say, the Bible is not intended to be written in code. And you have to have this secret code or that secret code or this kind of numerology or that to understand it. It doesn't. Put away all bitterness. Put away all jealousy. Put away all malice. Put on good conduct and character and love and kindness and virtue. The scriptures are gloriously clear. And what can be utterly disturbing is people get themselves worked up in a lather of d discussing and seeking to discover the wonderful deep things of the Word of God while not giving due attention to the very clear, simple things of the Word of God. Okay, you really want to boast that in certain doctrinal areas you have a deeper understanding than these people and these people. Good. But with regard to your observable life, the words of your mouth that make known what is the treasure of your heart, what is seen? Do you like to know more than the other person? Or do you love knowing and serving and pleasing God? Is your pursuit of a deeper knowledge that you might draw near to Him, that you might adore Him, that it might enlarge and enliven your worship? Or is it just so that you can out-argue the other person? God help us. And we need to understand this. The, the basic simple things are never set aside. The truths of how we ought to walk, how we ought to live, how we ought to speak, that never changes. And sometimes as we mature in our Christian life, there's, it seems like, well, we, all know, we already know that stuff. Move on to something else. We already know that stuff. Yes, there is knowing. And there is living. And you might notice this, some of you may have at some point watched on the television or gone uh, uh, to attend a basketball game. And what you might find interesting is if you were to go and see the Dallas Mavericks and so on, you would see they are professional basketball players. This is what they do as a career. They are trained in it. Their skill level is exceptional. And yet... How do they prepare for almost every game that they're about to play? Do they all go out there and take half-court shots? Do they all go out there and they're dribbling behind their back, between their legs, throwing no-look passes at one another? No. How does the warm-up look if you've ever seen it? It's the same kind of warm-up that you will see if you go to a, a primary school. 
If you go and watch fourth and fifth graders warming up for their basketball game, it's the same thing. They line up in lines and they go and take layups. <laughs> After they go and take layups and pass, then they take little short jump shots. They do the basics every single time. And it's not just the warm-up for games. It's, it's always in, in their uh, practices week by week. And you might think to yourself, why in the world would that man fill in the name of your present uh, icon of basketball or the previous icons of basketball who may have been better in some people's opinions, right? It, fill that in and you think, why would he need to take layup practice? It doesn't make any sense. But I'll tell you what, he doesn't complain about it. And he does it every day. Why? Because those basic things are there. And actually, what you find out is, they do that in the game. There are occasions in the midst of the game where they have the ball in the place and in the circumstance where that is exactly what they do. They practice it because it is practical. The basics are very practical. As much as I long for each one of us to have a hunger and thirst for the truth of God's word, for, for doctrinal depth and biblical purity, I don't want us to miss this important reality. The basics of what is pleasing in the sight of God that the Spirit would stir our heart to simple, faithful living. It's so important. I mean, it, I know it seems very obvious, but I don't want us to miss this. That message he laid out to him. And, and it's gracious that he did that. Many of us will remember, it's not only that did he come and give a second opportunity to Jonah, but most of us will also be aware the mercies of God have been shown many times. We are aware also of Peter. And Peter was quite confident in himself. I mean, we, we heard some things earlier this morning about the American dream. You know, and, and one of the things that often characterizes people in pursuit of the American dream is a remarkable, unearned overconfidence in themselves. <laughs> I can do this. And they're even told that. If you just dream it and never get up, give up and work really hard, you can do anything. Is that true? There, there are, for, for the number of success stories, the number of those who have given, maybe worked harder than some who have succeeded, but they simply didn't have the aptitude didn't have the genetic circumstances necessary. What, the, the idea, things get so confused and constrained. But what, what I want us to know this is, when someone gets appointed for service, and, to, and, and the motivation for servants, service isn't that I am worthy, I am the best for this. But it is that God is worthy, He deserves my best. It's a simple, a simple because... Did Paul consider himself the best choice for an apostle? He considered himself unworthy even to be called an apostle. The least among them. Unfit. And yet when we look at how God used him, with regard to the New Testament scriptures, more prolific, more influential than any of the other apostles. And so he recognized himself as unworthy, Peter himself, he had this sure confidence, no matter what happens. And what's probably going to happen is these fellows will desert you, but not me. I, I, I think if we could have interviewed Peter, he probably would have been as confident in himself to, to say that, yeah, I, I think you'll deny yourself before I deny you, Jesus. I mean, he seemed that overconfident because he was saying, no, 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 I will die before I abandon you. I will die before I do that. After Jesus had just told him what? You will all deny me. And then what does the scripture account for us in John chapter 18 that happened on the night in which Jesus was betrayed? 
were well aware. He denied him, but we could also say he denied, denied, denied him. Three times before the cock crowed. And so, at the very least, that proved to some degree his unfitness. And by the time we do get over to John chapter 21... They know that Jesus has been risen from the dead. But for some reason, Peter instigates them, says, let's go fishing. And they go back to their boats. Remember, on one time, God, Jesus had said, follow me. And what did they do? They left their boats and they went and followed him. Jesus has died and risen again. And what is Peter doing now? Going back to his boat. Jesus had said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And when all is towards the end, Peter is going back to be a fisher of men or a fisherman. And he goes back out to the water. And Jesus comes in John chapter 21. Does a miracle again of filling those nets with fish. And Peter swims to shore. And then Jesus begins that investigation sort of like the three denials jesus engages him three times with a simple question and the first the way he phrases it the first time is interesting because he says this peter do you love me more than these remember you were the best you were the greatest you were the superior, the undeniable. Compared to everybody else, they might fail, but you never will. Remember, you're better than everybody else with regard to your commitment in your own estimation. Do you love me more than these? And Peter replies. And I, you know, in my imagination, I, I picture him avoiding eye contact and you know I love you, Lord. Lord, you know that I love you. So, so now he's not saying. You know I love you more than these. It seems like he's sort of been put in his place. You know that I love you. And then Jesus asks him the second and third time. He doesn't say, do you love me more than these? He just says, do you love me? And each time when he replies, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What was Jesus' statement to him? It wasn't, you lost. You lied. You failed. No, it was Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. You know, and I don't know if God only knows the details and their inner workings of a man's heart, but as he was denied in triplicate, he was, he was called and reaffirmed to that ministry and that service in triplicate. Could Peter go out thinking he was worthy? Of course he was not worthy in himself. The scriptures would say of those who are ministers of the gospel and ministers of reconciliation, who is competent, who is sufficient in himself for these things. We hold these truths, we hold these, this message in clay jars, earthen vessels. We're nothing. We're basic. Nothing glorious, nothing amazing. But... What's in the vessel is what matters, not the vessel. And that's what really they learned. It's, it, it's not about my fitness and my worthiness. My, my significance comes by what's inside of me. And it's the gospel. And it's his grace. And it's his Holy Spirit. And, the, and we see that, again, the mercies of God reconciling him we see the reconciliation of the master he's the one who prompted even in jonah the word of the lord came it with in john chapter 21 jesus singled out peter and spoke to him the one who even in on these occasions initiated the reconciliation with the disobedient with the rebellious with the failure who initiated that reconciliation was God himself. It was Christ himself. And so that's a wonderful thing when we think about it. Because all of us, every single one of us, in some way, has failed God at some point. Even in our attempted service. We've gotten distracted. 
We've gotten caught up in other things, whether it's the world that's caught us up, whether it's anxieties, whether it's work, whether it's family, uh, whether it, it can be good things, but they've been, we've at times allowed them to ascend to a place of priority they don't belong. And we know that we have proven ourselves unfit. There's, there's rarely a believer that I've ever spoken with who would be supremely comfortable if everyone knew their every thought. The things that they keep secret from even those who are closest to them. Nobody necessarily wants it. Nobody would like it if there was a screen on our forehead that was giving words and images of the thoughts that are going on in our heads at all times. And it might, might affect our conversations with one another. Whoa. <laughs> you know, they don't like me. They don't like what I'm saying. What, why are they thinking about their dog? You know, I mean, it, 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 or why are they so jealous? Why are they so angry? Are, are their thoughts pure? We would, we would shudder, I think, if everything that went on in the secret recesses of our mind was visible and known to all. I don't think any would necessarily opt into that. But the reality is, we ultimately cannot opt out of that. It is all seen and known by God. You would not opt into it to be known by others. But you can't opt out of the fact that it is known by the one that matters more than any other. And I am so thankful for one. That the one who knows all these things is merciful. And forgiving. And says, not because of your worthiness... But because of my grace, you are forgiven. And then as we remember from First John chapter 1, verse 9, we confess our sins. He is faithful to forgive. Because my, yours and my repentance and confession of sin, it wasn't once for all, once upon a time, was it? It is ongoing. And our fresh experiences of the forgiveness of God are as sure as his faithfulness. Like, like, an, like a refreshing, overflowing fountain. Forgiven. Forgiven again. And forgiven again. And not only forgiven, but each one of us is forgiven. Each one of us who are in grace, we, are, we have a role to one another. To love, to serve, to be iron sharpening iron. To encourage one another all the more. To make known the excellencies of Christ. Because we are a kingdom of priests. And we may and maybe should say to ourselves. I am not fit to proclaim his excellencies. We say. But what I proclaim. Is true. Because he is glorious. So ultimately though I know I am not worthy to declare it. He is worthy of it being declared. And so I will make it known. And by his grace, please forgive me. And by his grace, fit me more and more for the kingdom of God. Go on with me, if you would. So we, so we see the renewal of his mission. He says to go there and call out against it. And we see to a degree there is true repentance manifested here because look at the difference of what it says in verse in chapter one after God had given him the instruction it said in verse three but Jonah rose to flee in chapter three verse three it says so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh there is there is the big difference yes am I going to be perfect no but here's the simple question I can ask myself. These are the things that God has called me to do. How am I responding to these things? Am I turning away from sin? Am I actively seeking to do good to one another? Am I trying to be thoughtful and helpful and merciful and, and kind? Not merely for the sake of morality, but for the sake of the name of Christ. How am I, how am I doing these things? True repentance is manifest not simply by... Uh, the shedding of tears, 
But by now, he responds in obedience. That's the way even John, as he's dealing with those men who were coming out, the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites, he's like, he, as they're coming out for his baptism of repentance, he's like, who warned you guys to flee from the wrath to come? Do deeds consistent with repentance. Don't just come here and make a big show, beat your breast, put your hand in the air, shed a tear, and then carry on in your hypocrisy and arrogance. Turn from your sin to serve the living God. We're going to see those things also more in a moment. Not only God's pardon and patience, but let's, let's see God's proclamation and purpose. So Jonah arose and went there. And he announces what he's gone there for. He goes there and cry out against it. More details were given in chapter 1. It says in verse 2, call out against it for their evil has come up before me. So he is going there for the simple purpose of declaring to them God's judgment. Now, now there could be two, two things that, that may be stirring up in his mind. It doesn't always bode well for an individual to go into a community that's not his own. Actually, to a community of people who are somewhat at enmity with his people. And his message to them is going to be much like this. You're all evil. And in 40 days, you're done. I mean, that message could be met with what? Yeah. Sticks and stones will break your bones, and we were here to prove it. You know, they could come at him right then. I mean, that's not a positive message. That, that is a hostile message in a hostile environment. That is not easy. And he, but he, this, what's important for us to know about this is as he goes in there, he tells him to cry out against this city. And I want you to see again at the end of verse 2 of chapter 3, call out against it. The message that I tell you. That is a big and significant thing. What is to be communicated? How he feels? Is he to share his thoughts and his feelings? His, his encouragement and discouragement? His hopes and his dreams? No, what is he to share? The message that God tells him to share. Nothing has changed. When we go forth with the gospel, it's not of our own making. It's not for our own manipulation. The gospel that has once for all been delivered to the saints is the only gospel that is to be delivered by the saints. One and the same. And the reason why, of course, is because the gospel is the power of God into salvation. So why would you declare anything else if this is the only means of salvation? If, if, if everything else that you're going to declare does not produce, does not work, does not bring about the effect, what's the point? Well, I might be accepted. People might enjoy it more. I might get more of a, a, a more temporary positive responsiveness from the people. You know? And so let me be careful to go about this and tell stories about people who have suffered and died. Let me tell stories about brokenness and tragedy and depression and heartbreak and tears and, and misery. And then happiness and joy and recovery. And are you sad? Are you miserable? Do you want hope? Do you want to be happy? If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. I mean, what, how, how does that get into this kind of thing? And, and so pretty soon it's not, we are all dead in our sins. 
We are all hostile. We are all rightly under the judgment of God. And if we do not come to him in repentance and faith in Christ, there is no forgiveness. No, we don't say that. We don't tell people they're evil. We don't call out against them that they are, that judgment is coming. That's not the popular pattern of modern missions and evangelism. Because why? If I tell somebody he's evil, that will make him uncomfortable. Might make him angry. He won't believe me. All I want to tell him is how he can have a better life today. How he can have uh, uh, more joy, more success. Let me tell him those things because those things will appeal to him. Well, I will tell you this. The message that this man, Jonah, came with to Nineveh, not appealing not attractive so should he have made it more attractive should he have made it more appealing the answer is no because what was he sent to do tell them what I tell you as simple as that because and I, and I want us to be aware of this and, and not miss out on this um, Oh, and we'll see it in a moment. So this message came, and it is a revelation of misery, judgment. Forty days you shall be overthrown. Again, I often note this in, my, in, in myself. I, I, knowing Jonah's feeling towards the Ninevites, it is highly unlikely that he declared this with a great degree of sympathy and compassion. Oh, no, please turn, please turn. No, what was he saying? 40 days and you will be overthrown. 40 days and you will be done. That's it. Declaring it possibly with bitterness, possibly with angst. He's, he's delivering this message, which is a message here that has no hope. I think that's one of the reasons we've got to understand. It's a blessing for us to live in the new covenant era. Because we, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has been made known in Christ. Now, there's no hope stated in this particular message here. But when we go out, we don't simply say, at the end of your days, you will be overthrown. Do we? We can declare that same warning. We can't say 40 days necessarily, unless you know something I don't. But you get, at the end of your days, you will be overthrown. At the end of your days, you will be judged. We will all stand before the wrath and fury of a holy God. Yet that's not the end of our gospel message, isn't it? We get to declare what's called the good news, which goes further, and that is, but there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation, there is hope for all those who turn from their sin in repentance, turn to God in faith, in Christ, having understood who Christ was, what he came and accomplished, uh, to recognize that he bore the fury and wrath of God against sin for all who would come to him in faith. Wow, that's good news. So that any who come to him will find that in him there is the full forgiveness of their sin and acceptance with God. That is glorious. Now, that's not the message that was declared to Nineveh. And yet Nineveh turned from their sin. We have a fuller, more glorious gospel message than Jonah delivered. And yet in the purposes of God, Jonah's delivery brought about wholesale, widespread repentance. We've got a message that exceeds that. Even I want us to see what is the response of men. First of all, um, let's look at the many. The people of Nineveh. Let's see what, how they responded to the word of God. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. 
and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now this is amazing because from the greatest to the least is, is a book in statement that speaks of the whole community. They proclaimed a fast that is a, that is a, a, a self-denying act and they put on sackcloth. Now that's not an ordinary fashion. Uh, again, that word is also not one we commonly use, but thankfully, it's a compound word, so we can break that word down into its component parts. Sack. Do you know what a sack is? You ever seen a sack of potatoes or a sack of onions? A sack, it, it, it's not generally attractive. It's not a fashion statement what you put vegetables in. Is that right? And so it, it, is, it was generally the most basic thing. It was the setting aside of, of all that which was uh, attractive, all of that which was easy, all of that which was comfortable. Now, it wasn't a setting aside of all clothing because that would be immodest. And so it was taking of the absolute bottom of the cloth materials <laughs> To cover, it, you know, and to deny themselves. And more than that, not only do we see the, their response, they recognized God's word as true. What does it say in verse 5? The people of Nineveh believed God. Now, it's interesting because ten, our tendency would be to say this. Well, did, didn't they believe Jonah? Yes, but what was Jonah delivering? The message from God. In the end, we don't have to worry about, uh, do I have enough of a relationship with these people so that they respect me? Have I built those bridges yet? In the end, it's not even about them believing us. It is about them believing God. Believing the gospel of His glorious grace. And so we've got to get ourselves out of the way. I can't do this because I don't know if they'll believe me. I can't convince somebody. I can't answer all their questions. I've often said this to those who struggle with, what do I do if I face... Um, and, and, and there are classes that teach these things. What do I do if I face a Muslim? What do I do if I face a Jehovah's Witness? What do I do if I face uh, this person? And they ask this question about... This and that, and how it compares to their religion. I don't have all the answers. And I said, well, that's okay. I mean, in time, you may have more and more answers, and you can engage them in that. But in the short term, you can do is say this. I don't know that, but this I do know. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was fully God, fully man. There is no salvation in any other well, what about this? I don't know about that, but this I know. God's word says, in him, there is hope. In him, there is eternal life. In him and in his blood, there is the forgiveness of sin. All those other things I don't know, but this I know. And those things that we declare that we know, those are the truths of God. I don't get the sense that there was a lot of dialogue, a lot of back and forth going on with Jonah here. Well, what about... No, there's no what about. He's just saying it out there, and God is making use of it. They recognized it was the Word of God, they believed it, and they repented. The way that it says, uh, not only from the least to the greatest, but let's move on and see... Not only the many, but the mighty, because the king himself gets involved here in verse 9. And it says this, or verse 7 and following, the, the king himself is going to set forth, uh, first of all, go with me to verse 7, a resolute dissemination. What he says here in verse 7 is this, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither, neither man nor beast nor, nor herd nor flock taste anything. Now this is shocking because I'm unaware of fasts that have gone beyond the human community before. And also I will note this, no one has called them to fast. They just declare an absolute wholesale fast that every single created being may be rightly under the wrath of God. And so we better 
everything and everyone is fasting. Not only no food, but it says no water. So no food or drink. We also see an expression of what I call remorseful humiliation here. As they believed God, verse 6 says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne and he removed his robe. So that which really differentiated him from everyone else as the royal man. And he covered himself also with sackcloth. And he sat in ashes. Now ashes often were those things that when you take wood and you burn it up to where it's no longer useful for anything, it's ashes. When you've... When you've um, uh, burnt a sacrifice and you've burnt it ultimately the uh, some of them down to certain parts of them into nothing but ashes they're useful for nothing you just spread those ashes out they have no practical useful value anymore and th there is a symbolism is in in all of this that speaks of utter repentance i don't deserve the food i eat I don't deserve the water I drink. I don't deserve the clothes that I wear. I am utterly worthless and useless. That's what the fasting, the sackcloth, and the ashes symbolize. I have no claims on anything of myself. And we, and we see uh, what's also remarkable. Look at the reverent submission. I love what it says in verse 3. Uh, or I mean chapter 3 verse 8 and 9. As they covered. Not only uh, do, you, do you do. Will everyone do that. But it says this. Let them call out mightily to God. So not, not just humble yourselves. Not just have a right recognition of your unworthiness and that you deserve God owes you nothing good but also call out to him recognize him and his authority and his might and his worthiness so what, what's really happening is he's saying you know what we need to do people we need to understand and get down where we really are and we need to call out to him recognizing who he really is. We need to recognize how low we are and how high he is. And then he goes on to say this. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hand. Let us not just do this as a show and as a pre pretense. This is not just an attitude. But if it is a real attitude, it will inevitably involve action. Let us not only recognize our unworthiness, but let us also recognize that what we've been doing deserves punishment. Let's do differently from now on. Now, do they have a right to think that God will uh, have to listen to them? I've been uh, around certain groups at times that are uh, often involved in fasting and prayer in certain seasons and and they will say you know what if you really want god to give you that you really want god to do that fast and pray if you fast and pray he has to listen to you and he has to give you what is it that somehow we can kind of strong arm god and if we fast and pray he's not allowed to say no we don't want that because aren't, isn't his wisdom better than ours? So we don't want to somehow think that we've got an ace up our sleeve to manipulate him to do whatever we would want. Okay, uh, okay you're saying no. I'm going to fast and pray. Now you got to say yes. That's not the way that it works. When, when these people do all of this the, uh, outwardly for three days and a commitment to a life change, look what it says in verse 9. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. We don't know. Does he feel like if we do this, God owes us? Does he feel like God's going to have to forgive us? What he's saying is, we've got to do this 
because we now recognize who we are. We recognize who he is. We recognize the evil that we've done, that it is accountable and we are responsible before him, that he is going to bring it to judgment. It's enough. He's God. We've got to start doing things his way. And who knows? Maybe he'll forgive us. Maybe he won't. But see, they're not doing this. At, it doesn't seem at this point that they're doing it with the confidence that he will forgive. They're doing it with the awareness that he has the right to judge and he's the only one who can forgive. They're not even doing it with a sense that somehow we will earn it. They know what they've earned through years and years of evil. And then we see the relenting mercy of God. And we're going to see a little bit more of this um, uh, in the coming days. But in the relenting mercy of God, it's important to see that God sees all of these things. Verse 10 says, God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way. They didn't just say it, but they did it. I mean, how many, and you know this is the case, how many people say, uh, I'm a Christian, which means I'm a follower of Christ. He's my Lord, he's my master, but they're not following him. The, the things they're doing in their life are like people in the world do it, not like Christ would have ever done it. How, how do you call yourself a follower of Christ if you're following the world? They not only claimed that they would turn from their sin, but the scripture said God sees, God saw, they turned from their evil ways. God help everybody who professes the name of Christ turn from their evil ways. Those who profess the name of Christ but then live like the world, that dishonors the name of Christ. It brings shame on the kingdom of God. That is not the way that it should be. They should see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what, that's what Jesus said. Let them see your good deeds. Like uh, someone who lets their light shine before men. They see your good deeds. And so I ask myself, and I encourage you to ask yourself this question. Do people see you? And how you're living? And how you're speaking, are you carefully making decisions so that whatever is seen, whatever is known about me, it would move people to give glory to God and say that he would deny himself those temporary pleasures, that he would uh, be uh, concerned for others, that she would be like this or that, uh, shows they they've got a commitment to something more, something different than themselves. Here they do that, and God sees what they do. And of course, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I want to, let me just read that verse again, and I want you all to listen closely to that verse. This is in the New Testament. Even though people like to pretend, boy, the God of the Old Testament, he was pretty harsh. And the God of the New Testament, he's the sweet one. That's a bunch of nonsense. God never changes, and we presume on so much. It says this, we all long for God to hear our prayers, don't we? And to answer our prayers. This is what it says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. We want him to look upon us with care and protection and preservation. Uh, his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's strong language, isn't it? Who wants to be one who the face of the Lord is against? Who wants to have God against them? Simple process. You want God against you? Do evil. Now, one of the challenges we face in that is our list of evil is the extreme sense. That's not the way the scriptures list. Every lie, every deceit, every disobedience, every rejection, 
every compromise is evil. I want us to also understand this. It says this, when God saw, he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And we'll look next week at Jeremiah chapter 18. I'm going to encourage you to read for yourself Jeremiah chapter 18 verse 7 and following to have in your frame of mind that God here didn't change his mind or change his word. He delivered this statement of judgment for the express purpose of driving these people to repentance. God accomplished here exactly what he had purposed. His purpose was not to destroy them. It was to declare to them the disaster that was due to them, that they would turn to him in repentance and faith and know his mercy and forgiveness. Because God's word never fails. And we're aware of that in Isaiah 55 verse 10. It reminds us that God is the one who sends the rain and the snow. And it provides and the harvest and all of the things that grow. And then in comparison to how God sends the rain, and that has its direct result in what it accomplishes, he says these words in chapter 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but will accomplish that for which I sent it. Or that for which I purpose. It shall succeed in this thing for which I sent it. God's word is always successful. And it's important for us to know that. In, in Corinthians, Paul says, look, I am an aroma of life to life to those who are being given life. An aroma of death to death to those who are perishing. When I declare the same gospel message to one, they love it. And they eat it up. And their lives are changed by it. To the other, they reject it. They despise it. They scoff at it. But it has accomplished its purpose in both. One, to bring life. The other, to increase condemnation. But God's word always fulfills his purposes. So here's the, here's the, again, the simple thought as, as we cl close this out for today. If God's word always fulfills his purposes, then what should we speak to others? The word of God. If we're going to speak it, we've got to know it. But I want us to know if there's, if I was to boil these things down into two simple thoughts as I prepare to close uh, the sermon in prayer, it is... Uh, Speak what the word of God speaks. Do what the word of God says. Boy, that's like basic. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes we go back to the basics. The question is, it how, how well would you do on a theology exam? That's useful. But if you do well on a theology exam... But you don't know, speak the things that God's word speaks and do the things that God's word says to do. It doesn't matter. It's not about passing a test. Scribes, Pharisees, lawyers, men well schooled in the word of God, yet hypocrites. And, and Jesus said, you do all of these things and you yourself remain outside the kingdom of God. Those who enter the kingdom of God, they enter like simple children. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I will do what you say. I will speak what you speak. And I will honor you. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that we have, are able to spend time in your word. We thank you that we're able to see this occasion where we see your patience and mercy in the life of Jonah. We also see, Lord, that um, instead of just bringing judgment upon Nineveh, that you sent to them the threat and warning. You also granted to them time. What an expression, Lord. We know that you, you did not owe to Jonah a second opportunity or second chance. You did not owe to Nineveh 40 days. You had no, re no requirement to even send a messenger to warn them. But Lord, we are amazed 
at your mercy, your patience, your compassion, and your forgiveness. Lord, we are thankful to see, even in this, how you worked to, um, through practical circumstances, change Jonah from disobedience to obedience. Change the people of Nineveh through the conviction of sin and the threat of real judgment to turn them from their evil, to call out to you, to believe you, to seek to live faithfully before your eyes. God, we thank you for your patience and mercy that you exhibit towards us all the time. But Lord, we pray that we would not wait. If there are things in our lives that we are doing that is not uh, how, how you, what you would have us do, God, that you would turn us from those things, that we would commit before you to not continue, that we would get a sense of our utter unworthiness and the judgment that we deserve and that we would cry out to you and that we would turn. Lord, we thank you uh, for your mercy that always meets those who cry out to you in genuine uh, repentance and faith. Lord, we thank you for that display that you've given us here in Jonah chapter 3. In Jesus' name, amen.